You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 20. We made it to 20. We're still cooking of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And, and I'm Jeff. And he's Jeff. Bob is too afraid to go back to Idaho. So today, <laughs> we are coming to you again from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening. Thanks for coming. The Library Pros Podcast is produced bi-monthly. So don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Android, email, and now on Google Play. Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website, thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, joining us via Google Hangout is our remote Idaho correspondent, Jeff Stratter, from the Salmon Public Library in Salmon, Idaho. And also joining us via Google Hangout is Dina Brown, Assistant Professor, Liaison to Philosophy, Sociology, and Gender Studies, and Faculty Advisor to Creative Technology Association at Boise State University. (sighs) 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 Welcome, guys. I'm so happy to be back in Idaho. Happy to be here. Yeah, and thanks for inviting me back. Oh, Mm -hmm. gee. I'm excited to be here for the first time. Well, uh, in case you don't know, um, you know, Bob is my co-host usually, but for some reason he couldn't make it tonight, so Jeff will be stepping in and playing the role of Bob with the beard. I can only hope as I'm as charming as Bob is. <laughs> wow, already kissing my butt. I love it. I think I need to I think I need to rib you a little bit if I'm going to be like Bob, right? You have to. You have to. That's part of the uh the unwritten rule, I guess. So, today I can't wait to talk to you guys, you know, because you know, Idaho's fascinating to me now. I don't know why. There's just something about it now. I, I keep looking at the Google Earth of where salmon is, and I keep thinking, wow, that's really out there. <laughs> that's true. I think it was, it was all the cow talk last time that got you excited, wasn't it? You know, I have to say it, and my kids said, please mention this in the podcast. They, my kids thought the best line in the whole podcast, because they watched it. They watched the video of it, was about the ratio of people to cows. It's a stunning fact. Many people don't know that. That is great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So I'm assuming, I mean, we're going to get into this in a minute, but we're going to talk about how you guys communicate through your, you know, through the state with, you know, video teleconferencing and and digital resources and all that good stuff. And we're also going to talk about the Idaho Library Association maker community you guys are very involved in, which I'm very excited to listen to because in New York State, we'll talk about what we're doing in New York State a little bit later. Um, But first, let's ask Dina some questions about her background, how she became involved in the library world and making. So let's start at the beginning. Do you have a master's degree in library science? I most certainly do. All right. So where'd you get your degree? Um, I've got my degree from Emporia State in Kansas, but thankfully I never had to set foot in the state of Kansas to get it. Oh, that's great. (laughs) You know, it's always interesting when we ask people where they get their, their MLSs because if they're here in New York and they're downstate, you either went to St. John's or Long Island University CW Post or Queens College, CUNY Queens. And it's so refreshing to hear somebody who got a library degree from someplace other than those three schools. Yeah, Emporia has a great program of cohorts that they have kind of 
across the U.S., but I feel like there's a lot of them out West. And it was this great combination of in-person and online. So I was able to keep working while I was working towards my MLS because it was for every one class that I took, there were two weekend intensives where I was in class from Friday night to Sunday afternoon. Um, So I got to have that interaction with my classmates, that face-to-face and get to network with people that were already working in libraries in the area, but had the flexibility of being able to do a lot of the work online. That is really cool. And it still fascinates me that you can take a whole uh, master's course online and and get a degree without actually having to set foot maybe more than once or twice on campus. Yeah. That really is cool. I think think Dina needs to do a podcast with Kansas because she might have the same feelings that people have about Idaho. So maybe (laughs) maybe need to relate with some people in Kansas. I've heard Lawrence is really cool, which is just outside of Emporia. So I think what happens is a lot of people that work at Emporia or go to school there actually live in Lawrence, Kansas. The only thing I know about Lawrence, Kansas is the movie The Day After. (laughs) Wasn't it in Lawrence? I think it was Lawrence, Kansas, wasn't it? I haven't seen it. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not a good movie. I think think it might be a good segue, though, um, since you were talking about Kansas and places – I don't even know this. Dean, are you from Idaho? I am not. I am from Beaverton, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. Hmm. Wow. And so I grew up there um, and I got my master's degree while I was still living and working in Portland and then uh, lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico for about four years before moving here to Boise about three years ago. Wow, that really is cool. You've been around uh, the whole West, I guess, huh? Or at least yeah. the Northwest, kind of Northwest area. Yeah. Idaho is not really considered Santa Fe, Northwest, Santa Fe right? is not North. Oh, yeah, that's no. true, too, yeah. Wow. It is the high desert, though. It is. I know. I really kind of liked it down there. Um, was one of the things that kind of um, drew me back up this way was I missed the Northwest, but I, um, I can't stand the weather in the Willamette Valley, I, oh gosh, you know, nine months out of the year, the world ends here because there's just this like cloud that never goes away. You never see the sky. And every winter I just got grumpier and grumpier. And so when the opportunity to move to Santa Fe that has like 360 days of sun every year, I was like, yes, I will totally do that. Oh, that's great. And maybe I'll explain to Chris real quick. So there's this thing called high desert for the people in New York. That okay. don't get out here to the the remote west. Oh, there, here comes the ribbing. I get it now. Now numbers. Beat <laughs> elevation. That uh, a lot of sagebrush. You know, we get snow in a desert. <laughs> What's cool. A, you what's should come out and visit, Chris. I'm you should. We'd love to have you. I would love to go out head out there. That would that'd be a great road trip to take one day. But I'm not driving. I'll fly. Every time I libraries talk, and deserts. The I'm, new new series. The tumbleweed books. <laughs> what yeah. all the cool kids are doing. Nice. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we stay on track. So you're in Boise now. Um, you moved out there. Mm-hmm. How do you get to start working with the uh, university? I There was an opening and I applied. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's uh, well, I, I actually started off working in public libraries um, and uh, did that for a number of years both in Portland and Santa Fe. And, um, but I really wanted, I kind of had a moment in my career where I was like, okay, this is, this is going great, but I feel like there's certain aspects of public libraries that just aren't really kind of 
hitting it for me. And, um, and I realized that I really liked doing instruction, which is something that I had basically been able to do with every job I've had since I graduated with my undergrad. And I wasn't getting to do that in the public library positions that I had. So I was really interested in getting into um, academia where I'd be able to teach. That really is cool. So tell us what drew you towards technology, not just in a library setting, but in general. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of this weird combination of high tech, low tech. I mean, I, a piece of paper and a pen is technology, actually. Um, and having a fine art background, I think, helps kind of inform the way that I incorporate technology into my life and into my working. So um I mean, I remember my first computer experience was in grade school with the little little carrot turtle guy going around on the screen and being able to program that on like that tiny Apple monitor. <laughs> um, and I think that was actually a really positive experience in my life. And so that was where technology and libraries were coming together. And I've never obviously forgotten that. I still remember it to this day. And so I think Technology is something that can be used for good and evil. And um, working in a library, I kind of see my job as helping people figure out how to use it for good. Well, that makes some sense because, you know, you want to use things for good and not for evil. Um, I, I just want to chime in there, too, because I feel like that that's a daily, um, not battle of mine, but I, I, I deal with patrons all the time, especially living in a remote rural community. Um something like technology can be very uh, abrasive to the uh, community here. So I find I do spend a portion of my day trying to um, uh, introduce them to technology in a way that it can be useful to them, um, not only within the library setting, but within their um, lives outside of there that doesn't include like Facebook or something like that. For sure. Well, that does make sense too. I mean, think about I mean, I don't know about, you know, the way it is in Idaho, but, you know, we're walking around with this thing in our pocket. And um, I know just from being here, you know, teaching classes on iPhone and iPad and things like that, that people have no idea the power that they're holding in their hands. That's not like Darth Vader, no idea the power. But, you know, <laughs> there are so many things that you can do with these devices now that, and there was an article a few years ago that said if you were to add up how much it would cost for all the different individual items that like an iPhone or an Android device can do like between flashlight and sound recorder and all these different things, it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars and we're carrying it now in our pocket. It's insane. Yeah. Um, and yet still there's a large portion of the population that, you know, just uses it for know, one or two things. Yeah. And it seems like it's infinitely customizable, which is part of what I think helps make it more meaningful for people is that, um, okay, yeah, you can use the camera on it, but there are all these other apps and things that you can do with a camera to download it and use it in a way that is the most meaningful to you versus um, buying, you know, a physical camera. Yeah, you can get different lenses and filters and kit it out. But then that also means you've got a whole bunch of other stuff you have to lug around with you um, versus just downloading an app that kind of simulates some of that stuff. Right. And, you know, it's interesting I, that you say that, you know, you don't need all the lenses and everything else because you can do everything in post. Yeah. I mean, I have a weird follow-up that I, I'd love to hear your opinion on because 
I come from that camera world or that camera background, and there's still something, again, about using a camera. But we'll bring it back to libraries. And now that you have that same ability with, say, ebooks and e-reader and Kindles and tablets and things like that, and somebody can lug around 15 books, but they're still the person that's like, I just want to hold that book in my hand. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yes, there are some advantages of having all of those things in one place, but at some level, it doesn't replace our physical connection to something. Exactly. And I mean, my undergraduate degree was in photography. So I definitely still have a connection to all of the cameras that I have in my arsenal um, and uh, have an emotional attachment to them. Actually, I think in a way that I don't think I'll ever have to Is it unhealthy? My phone. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on if you ask my husband or not. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So tell us how you got involved involved with making. Now don't get don't give away too much because we're going to have some more questions in our next segment, but just give us like a broad overview of how it, how you kind of I don't know if you fell into it or it fell into you or Sure. So uh, so having my undergraduate degree in fine art um, and being a a maker, um, I worked in art-related industries for a number of years before uh, going after my MLS was what I kind of did in that gap between my undergraduate and my graduate degree. So it's something that's always been a part of my life and continues to be a part of my life. Um, In fact, uh, my husband and I run a business, an art business out of our house where we um, work with other artists and we go teach classes um, on different types of art making. And uh, I really feel like I got to kind of lengthen my stride with that when I came here to Boise State. Um, And uh, I had had yarn bomb something for ages and hadn't really had the opportunity to do so. And um, so the first year that I was here, I approached my supervisor and I was like, hey, I really think it'd be this fun communal thing to yarn bomb something. Um, you know, what what hoops do I need to jump through to make that happen? And, sh- and her advice was, if you relate it to something academic, then we can make it happen. <laughs> and so um, I realized that there was all this research on how knitting is a great stress reliever and crafting and actually making in general is. And um So I asked for donations from staff here in the library of yarn and needles and was overwhelmed with the response. You know, everyone's got a stash of that stuff, I guess, in their closet somewhere. And they were more than happy to donate it to the cause. (laughs) And uh, and so that first year for finals week, uh, I hosted Knitting for Stress Relief in the library and had people that were staff that came that knew how to knit and just liked the idea of coming together and doing that for a week, had students who had never knit before, but thought that it sounded kind of fun. And so now we have just this, like, we've added to it every semester. And now there's just this kind of ridiculously long scarf um, that hangs in the maker lab here in the library. (laughs) That's crazy. And, and, you know, we're going to be doing some yarn bombing uh, with something that's happening here at the library in, uh, during our Maker Fair, which is going to be, uh, look at I'm a terrible librarian. I'm just completely blanking on the date. I think it's June 17th. But we'll, this is where, Jeff, you jump in and say, oh, you're going to say the name of your library? This is where Bob <laughs> usually breaks my chops. Ah, uh, yeah, because you're trying to self-promote, huh? Yeah, well, you know, it's just it comes out of my mouth. I don't know how to stop sometimes. I'm <laughs> so. guessing that they might be doing that for National Yarn Bombing Day or International Yarn Bombing Day, which is June 11th. Well, actually, we're going to um, talk about that in a minute because it actually has something to do with the launch of the Summer Reading Club. 
So, oh, cool. So let's cool. take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about you guys and, and the work that you're doing with the Idaho Library Association's Maker Committee and yarn bombing and all kinds of fun stuff. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, thanks for staying with us. We're back with Dina Brown and Jeff Stratter. You notice I spelled your name right this time? Yeah, no L in there today. No L today. <laughs> and good job on pronouncing mine. <laughs> yes, you gave me the phonetics before. Thank God. Because what happens, I, I Jeff, I always mess up, right? I always mess up a name. So uh, Dina and Brown. Dina and Brown. Good job. See, I just did it. After I just jinxed myself. See? Just pumped yourself up. There you go. <laughs> Dina and Jeff are co-chairs of the Idaho Library Association's Maker Committee. So... Both of you and Jeff are co-chairs of, of this maker committee. Tell us what the committee does. Uh, what are your plans, your directions for the committee? You know, how's it, where's it going? You know, and, and tell us about your affiliation, the affiliation with Boise State. So it isn't necessarily just affiliated with Boise State because it is part of the State Library um, Association. It just so happened that, um, that actually Jeff and I met, gosh, was it a year, two years ago? It was probably, yeah. It was, yeah, February of last year, I guess, in the Make okay. It program. Okay. So um, so uh, Jeff um, and a bunch of other librarians from across the state came to, were in Boise, and, um, and the library here, we hosted an Arduino workshop for librarians that uh, <clears throat> it was a summer. So normally our workshops are only open to people affiliated with the university. Um, but we thought that this would be a great way to reach out to our um, professional community. And we knew that we were going to have a captive audience with all those folks in town. And um, and so started chatting with Jeff and um, uh had some had some fun ideas that percolated out of that, and then that summer, uh, as part of a group that I volunteer with through the Idaho Commission for Libraries, uh, had the opportunity to travel across the state, and one of the cities that I could go to was Salmon. So of course I signed up for that one. <laughs> so so Dean has been here, Chris. So just you know, it's your turn. Oh, nice. <laughs> We're gonna keep making the the pitch for you to get out here keep poking at that yeah so do you take a puddle jumper to get out to salmon or how do you get out there <laughs> oh you gotta drive long long drive oh man there's no there isn't you even can, a lake to land in <laughs> you, you can tell your kids how many cows you count on the way in yeah oh, that, that's lovely I, i've got a great photo from when we drove out there of um i'll send it to you it's of everyone that was in our car and there's a picture of us on this like really precarious road that's like that drop off is like this and you just see down this valley behind us um and when our driver was looking at the directions on the map they're like well that doesn't really look like a road but i'm pretty sure it is and it's like an hour shorter than going the other what, way was it trail, trail creek road through sun valley yep yeah 
It's quite the road. It's quite scenic. But anyways, Beautiful. continue with your story. I just chimed in and caused this to be a longer segment. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, Jeff, so talk about how, uh, from so your met, perspective. And then we met again at um, uh, ILA holds an annual conference, which I'm sure like New York at some level um, does and pull, pulls their libraries in and, and holds seminars and workshops and things like that. Yeah, and, we have one too. Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, Dean and I were in a couple different workshops throughout that together. And um, again, more ideas were kind of forming. And then shortly after that, the president of ILA thought it might be a good idea to formulate a um, committee, a maker committee specifically designed and knows that both of us were kind of very active in that um, area. So she said, do you guys want to co-chair this committee? So it really only got born um, not even a year ago, probably October of of last year. Yeah. So this is kind of something new for Idaho in that world. Uh, there's a lot of people doing some wonderful making um, groups that are kind of around. Um, I guess this is just one more group um, that's kind of getting formed, but we're trying, that's part of what we're trying to do is trying to get everybody on the same page and move in a forward direction as a state rather than different groups doing different things or the same thing and not really um, combining our efforts in a way. So a big goal of ours is creating um, some tools and resources for people, which there are already um, a few of them out there for the state. But what we really wanted to do was create an opportunity for um, people that are making or people that are interested in making at their libraries to be able to network with other libraries that are already doing that and to get an understanding of that making can look like a lot of different things depending on what your library has available. Because I think a lot of times, especially in, um, in some of the smaller towns in Idaho, it can seem really daunting when you're you know, your library is a tiny room and it only has a part-time staff person and that's it um, to think of ways that you can incorporate this sort of educational opportunity into your programming. And so we wanted to make sure that we were showing the breadth of making so that people, so that we could kind of um, remove that excuse of, well, of course they can do that. They have a giant budget was a big one. Right. I, and go ahead. I'm sorry, Jeff. No, I was just going to say that, just to follow up on that point, and what, so what we did for that was, um, oh, well, I, originally I'd started with some Twitter chats, which we can get into um, in a bit, um, but I realized that that wasn't going, that was going to be a successful platform, but not at the current state because there wasn't a network that we had kind of pre-developed to um, populate that Twitter chat with people that are participating in a way that they're taking something from it. So. Um, we decided we needed this Rolodex of uh, contacts. So we created a uh, Google form together. Um, and that's one of the ways that we communicate quite heavily is through all sorts of Google um, docs and Google forms. And uh, then I figured out a way, which isn't that terribly difficult, to take that information, which populates in a Google Excel spreadsheet, and then that formulates a Google map. And now we have a f survey that we can send out or people can sign up and fill out and it will put their their little dot on the map and just show all the contact information for that particular library. That's really great. I know it's funny. I'm going to give a plug to my friend Nick. Uh, Nick Tanzi from the Mastic Mariches uh, Shirley Community Library is involved with uh, our New York State organization, which is NYLA, the New York Library Association, uh, where they're trying to resurrect a, um, a maker group that was around for a little while and kind of went away. It's called the Maker Steam Roundtable. 
and we had we they had a um, a conference back in March, I believe it was March, either March or early April, and we went up to Albany, which is it's a good four hour drive for us, four four and a half hours, and it was interesting to see. And, and Dina, it was interesting when you were saying how different libraries can do different things. You know, some are more rural, some are not, and it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. What I was amazed about was how many makerspaces there were in upstate New York, which is can be fairly rural. And the things that they do, woodworking, metalworking, welding, that are commonplace up there. When Nick and I went up there, we just looked at each other and said, uh, who's their insurance carrier? How, how are they doing that? Because it would, it would never fly down here. Hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it would eventually, but, you know... I brought up the, the idea of maybe getting a table saw here just to cut some material so we're doing some of the things we do. And, you know, the director, assistant director kind of looked at each other, and I looked at him. I said, yeah, I know, insurance carrier, right? He's like, yeah. It's not saying we're not going to get it, but in the future, you know, we'll have to consider it. Where up there, they have CNC machines and uh, drill presses and table saws. And it, it's, it's cultural as much as it's um, financial. I agree 100% with that. And um, the working with getting the Maker Lab up and going here on campus, um, which we're the first university in Idaho to have a makerspace in it. Got to give a shout out to ourselves. Woo! Woo. Um, uh, certainly, safety is something that uh, that we have been been concerned about, um, and coming up with policies that uh, that are that combination of allowing allowing access but creating a safe environment, and uh, and I also get inquiries time to time from people in the maker community asking, you know, what what sort of equipment should we get? We're starting a makerspace, and we want to know what to buy, and. Uh, you talking about community reminds me of that because if you you could have all the coolest equipment in the world, but if you haven't done any legwork on creating a community of practice or excitement around that, it's just going to sit there and not get used. Exactly. Um, so, so you really do need to bring that people component into maker spaces. I know that space is in the name, but um, people uh, are the game. Know, Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I, I always encourage people to think about that first, because that can also help inform decisions about what sort of equipment to buy. You know, the things that I want in a makerspace are going to be totally different from the things that the students here want in the makerspace. And it's not my makerspace, it's theirs. So you need to really kind of get in tune with your community and figure out what's going to work for them, which I think Jeff has done a great job of, of being able to provide that um, sound studio that they've got there and having it kind of function as a flex space too for his community. And I'm glad you said that it's not mine, it's the communities because there are people out there that say, well, you know, this is the makerspace. Well, you can do this, you can't do that. When really it's more to facilitate what the public wants to do. And when, when people come into our makerspace, I say, what do you want to do? What you know? It's more than just printing out a rubber, you know, a, a dog or or a cat or something. What do you want to do? What do you want to make? What do you want to you know? It's doing, and it's not about well, you can't do this and you can't do that. As long as you're not making a weapon or making something that's obscene, I don't care what you make. For sure, and uh, my co-facilitator and I, we actually uh, call ourselves sortitators. 
to uh, make a pun about being in Idaho and potatoes being a big thing here because um, neither of us actually like anywhere in our job title does it really um, imply that we are facilitators of the makerspace. Um, so that's the sort of part. And then the tater part is we definitely see ourselves as facilitators rather than, you know, we're not managers of the space. We're helping others figure out how to use that space in a way that is meaningful for them. And that's a great point. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. Just give me one second. I got so excited. I lost my place. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> me too. Um, so tell me about funding because, I mean, you know, it, it's really great to have all this stuff, but if you don't have the funding to do it, you know, I mean, that makes it more creative. I, that's what I think, at least. You can be more creative with how you get stuff. But where does, um, where does the committee get the funding? Where does the committee get the funding? Yeah. We haven't actually used any funding yet. That's impressive. Yeah, this is mainly uh, – I think most of the positions that are on the board, right, are volunteer efforts. So it's all extra stuff that Dina, I, and the rest of the amazing crew there just chips in and wants to improve our network of of libraries. Is that am I misspeaking here, Dina? No, not at all. That's that is my understanding. There is funding that um, that we could apply for, mm-hmm. and certainly down the road we might if there are some sort of events that we're interested in hosting as a committee. Um, but as we were saying, we're just getting kind of some momentum going, and we thought that the most important thing, back to what I was just saying and as Jeff alluded to, was getting a community together and making people aware of what we're trying to do and aware of each other first. Um, And then we'll see if there's um, need for buying equipment or, um, I don't know, funding from promotional materials or whatever. We could make T-shirts. Yes. (laughs) Buttons. You were talking about button makers the other day. Buttons, yes. Yes. Button makers (laughs) is so popular, right? Apparently, they just got one. Didn't you have an, your engineering department build one for you guys or something? Yeah, yeah. We uh, they just, they bought one. They didn't build it, but oh, so um, that would have been cool if they built it. I know that would have been cool. Now I'm like, huh? They totally could. You could cast some metal parts and do that. So you could just mill <laughs> mill the metal parts and get some springs and levers, and you're good to go. Exactly. Yeah, and that's how this all starts. You see how that just happened? <laughs> <laughs> My gears are going exactly. So you, the committee is more of a facilitator, and I'm trying to say the word facilitator, as opposed to we have a CNC machine that you can borrow for a month. Did that, that make sense? I didn't hear you. You're cutting, cutting in and out, out so if there was a question yeah. there, I didn't hear it. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, so I was saying... New York Wi-Fi. I mean, you guys got to get on yeah, our Wi-Fi. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I gotta go, we got to go back to ISDN, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what, what I was asking, what I was um, trying to say was that the committee is more of a facilitator for ideas as opposed to saying we have a CNC machine back here and you can borrow it for a month. Right. I think we were tasked with, um, I don't even know where that is, but we have a list of things that we're supposed to accomplish over this year. Um, and it seems a lot of it is surrounding more of awareness and connection than it is, um, like you said, um, getting people machinery or things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. But certainly part of what we do is, uh, like earlier today we had, um, was that earlier today? No, that was yesterday. No. God, this week. Um, 
uh, we had an online chat where um, we were helping make people aware of funding opportunities that were available to them. So certainly I see that as a function that we could play. But there are a couple of other big entities in the state that um, that do all kind of similar stuff. And so um, I think uh, part of what I'm hoping that we'll figure out, and Jeff has kind of reached out to some of those other groups recently, is figuring out a way that we can all um, work together and uh support one another, but without uh, duplicating efforts. So kind of helping, and I think being a new committee for ILA, we're still kind of figuring out exactly what it is that we're looking to do. um, And maybe having conversations with some of those other groups will help us figure out where there are holes that we can help fill. Um, I just want to throw it back to Chris. Do you guys in New York have something similar or anything in that vein or ballpark? We kind of do. We have, like I said before, we have NILA, New York Library Association, and we're kind of resurrecting the um, the Maker Roundtable. But a lot of things in New York are broken down by county, and each county has a library system. And like Suffolk County is the Suffolk Cooperative Library System. And in case Bob is actually listening, I didn't say county; I said cooperative. That was we just interviewed them in our last podcast, um, and they have a robust. Uh, lending library. And in that lending library, there's virtual reality equipment, 3D printers, a popcorn machine, outdoor um, uh, video equipment so you can you know, have the inflatable screen and show the movie and they handle the licensing and all that stuff. So county to county, we have a library systems that actually facilitate helping libraries get those kinds of things, especially if they're a library that doesn't have the funding to purchase that kind of stuff. Uh, as far as New York State goes, we don't really have that kind of support. At least as far as I know, we don't have that kind of support from, from New York State, uh, from the New York State Library Association, from, from NILA. Uh, we do receive money from New York State uh, as like supplemental financing for different things. But as far as it, you know, as far as it goes with getting support from a, a library association, we really don't have that. That's why... Um, that Maker Steam Roundtable is is trying trying to get resurrected, so we can uh, kind of facilitate the sharing of information. Because just like Idaho, New York, is, even though people don't realize it, is primarily a very rural state. Everybody hears about New York City and where we here we're here on Long Island, and you have Westchester, Rockland County, and then you have you know the city centers upstate. But especially with the cities upstate, you drive ten or fifteen minutes outside the city, and you're in farmland. So in some respects, Idaho and New York have some, you know, some similarities in that respect. So with bringing this roundtable back, hopefully it can facilitate some of the sharing of information. I know it already has happened. I've already um, have spoken with some people up in Binghamton and, and Rochester and Buffalo and Plattsburgh and up in the Adirondacks. So it's opened the dialogue. And I think that's more important than saying, well, I have this and I have that. Because not only can you um, not only can you share resources, maybe they have something that you don't have where now you need a part, you email them the schematics and they make that part, they ship it down here and you can facilitate what the patron needs to do in order to finish the project they're working on. And the same thing vice versa. If they needed something that was 3D printed with a particular printer that we have, then we can you know, reciprocate with that. And that's something that we're trying to, in New York, especially here in Suffolk County with Nassau, 
we're trying to eliminate the borders because everything is segregated by county. I find that whole process fascinating. I know, Dean, that you wanted to probably jump in, but I, I find that like what libraries probably did with books and ILLs and things like that, what does that look like on the landscape for making and some other um, technology-oriented things as we move forward with technology? How does that break down barriers of counties and states and within your you know, area and how do they communicate with each other? It's fascinating to me. Oh, definitely. We had an opportunity to, um, we had a, you know, part of being at a university and certainly any library, you're wanting to have um, equal access to resources and tools for all of your users. And so you speaking of ILL, Chris is what made me think of it. Um, and uh, uh, we had a student who was a distance student but who wanted to 3D print something for their class. And um, which was a request that we were like, A, how did they find out that we even had 3D printers here in the building? Because we hadn't really promoted them at that point. <laughs> and two, oh gosh, what do we do with this? <laughs> um, and so uh, it was a great opportunity for us to kind of, I mean, just barely push ourselves, but to kind of think through, what is that going to look like if other people have that request down the road? <laughs> it does make sense, right? Yeah. Back on track, Chris. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it, it makes sense to share the resources because mm-hmm. why not? What, what's the worst that can happen? Right. So one of, one of the groups that I volunteer with um, through the Idaho Commission for Libraries, which is basically our equivalent of our state library system, uh, and as the group that I was volunteering with when I got to go visit Jeff and Salmon, is called the Special Projects Library Action Team, or SLAT, for short. Sounds like you and, jump out of helicopters um, with an acronym like that. And what we have done for a number of years is we have had these kits of equipment that um, that live in kind of the... Dif- Uh-oh. I lost her audio. Can you hear her, Jeff? Can borrow them. Right. Of state. Oh, now you're back. You're frozen yep. there. There you go. <laughs> Stupid New York internet. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> you guys need a bigger pipeline over there. Wow. <laughs> what are you at, like, probably at, like, five megabytes down or something? We're eight and eight, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. It's not too bad. It's pretty good. Better speed <laughs> test myself while Dina's talking. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, so so the way that we've kind of solved that problem of resource limited resources, limited budget, and disparate areas is that these kits were deployed and kind of lived with someone who uh, lived in some of these different parts of the state. And if someone at a library that was close by wanted to borrow it, so the kits had things like VR goggles, um, uh, I mean, just the cheap ones that you put a phone in. They had a 3D printer. They had Makey Makeys. There was a laptop. There were a variety of tablets. Um, there were some low-tech things like Kiva planks um, and a variety of tools in there that could be really expensive for a small library to be able to buy all of that. But if they could borrow it for free and even perhaps arrange for the person whose kit that was to go with it, then they could potentially have like an instant event at their library with resources that folks in that community maybe had not been exposed to previously. That's really cool. So let me ask you uh, just to kind of change the subject just for a second. Um, obviously, we're video chatting. 
and Idaho is a very big place and tends to be kind of a rural place. Um, how do you communicate with each other? I mean, obviously, there's email and, and chat and things like that, but um, I am assuming you use video chat as well, right? So that, that distance kind of face-to-face uh, interaction? We, we do. We use this blazing Idaho internet at 48 megabytes down and nine up um, <laughs> to, to talk about. Um, yeah, no, we'll just jump on Google. We'll, we'll either just do a Google... Um, chat window sometimes back and forth while we work or we'll uh, jump on a video chat if we have the time and you can get a lot accomplished very quickly that way but yes you're right there's a lot of distance to cover here um so anytime if i'm ever down in boise for training we might try to meet up and have a face-to-face but i think we're accomplishing quite a bit just through email and editing google docs and sharing sheets and forms and things like that mm-hmm. interesting so do you guys also have, because in New York we have a, an annual conference. Um, I know you kind of talked a little bit about this before. Um, but do you have like a, a huge conference that everybody from Idaho gets to go to and you get to collaborate and, and go to meetings and, and watch presentations and things like that? Yeah, there are a couple of conferences every year actually. There's the state conference that's the big one, and that rotates throughout the state to um, – hopefully make it more accessible to people. But then there's also regional conferences that happen. And I don't quote me on this because I don't remember how often the regional ones happen. I don't think those necessarily happen every year. Um, and so the idea is if, if the state conference is far away from you, hopefully you'll be able to make it to your regional conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in Boise, which is the biggest metropolitan area in the state. So I have access to a lot of other conferences that happen, whether they be specific to the state library organization or not. Um, but certainly, Jeff, I don't imagine there are a lot of people booking conferences in Salmon, Idaho, although they totally should. They should. And there's the, you know, I guess there's the, I don't know if you guys have these type of conferences too, but there, we have a small rural libraries conference too to kind of even cater more towards um, places like Salmon because it's easier to talk with people that are on similar budget constraints to you and see how people are doing things. But I really wish we had a conference that was called Library Land because I would totally show up all the time. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's my little euphemism for uh, talking about li- the library world. Um, I use it as well. Yeah, it's, oh. it's, it's just handy. It kind of it describes things without having to explain what it is. Well, I always just think of, like, Tomorrowland. I think that's some European rave concert, but, like... It's a I section kind of, of Disney World, isn't it? Land. It's a section oh, of Disney World. It? it is oh, Disney. Tomorrowland, maybe. Yeah. And what's the yeah. one? There's one, there's a... I don't know. We won't go off track, but... <laughs> Can you tell it's Friday? There's some magical, like, seven-day concert that had, happens in Europe that's called something like that. Never Never Land. I don't know. Tomorrowland. Something. <laughs> but Library Land should be right there or should be part of Disney. Yeah, sure. Um, but I'd hate to see how they represent Yeah, so I guess Dina was saying that we have multiple different um, conferences throughout, but not really accessible, again, to places like here in Salmon. It's quite the effort to um, – both financially to try to send our staff to that just because of how much distance this need to, you know, needs to be traveled, lodging, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people that are out in rural communities just don't have that access or representation because they just can't afford to send their staff. Now, we do have things within our um, 
state that you can apply for first time grants and things like that, that will get you to those places. But again, that takes a little bit more effort from people, but it is out there. So what's the buy-in like from, for video chatting from, especially from the rural places where they may not have, you know, blazing fast internet speed. I mean, is, is it kind of, Hmm. is it harder? Is it harder or do you meet resistance from the librarians in the, um, the more rural areas? I don't, I don't know about you, but Dean, I don't know who you've spoken to as far as like the people at those other libraries. Um, don't name names. We'll get in trouble. Yeah. No, I, I'm just thinking through. And when I've been in rooms um, where other rural libraries have been represented, um, a lot of them are just, I mean, like they'll ask a question like, hey, who has a library Facebook page or who's doing this at your library? And they'll go over different forms of technology. And a lot of them are, um, I don't want to say struggling to keep up, but they're just getting into that realm now. So if I were to say, hey, let's do a video chat, I I don't know that they might even have a staff member at their library that would know the procedure to go through to get them on online. Um, I just happen to be at the right place in the right time. And I don't know anyone here in Salmon that would have done that here at this library had I, I, you know, I just happened to be here and want to see that move forward here. So I think it just takes some, you know, clashing of worlds to happen um, for some of these other places. That's a great way to describe it, a clashing of worlds. I mean, Dino, do you have anything to add on that as far as rural libraries and video chats? I mean, I've never really had a video chat with others. I mean, I was even thinking about when we we ran our online um, video kind of roundtable discussion yesterday, trying to see what libraries in Idaho are are tuning in. Granted, you know, people might be busy, but again, there were a lot around the Boise area and not as many represented, you know, from around the state. For sure. I think Emmett was the furthest one that I could figure out that was on there. You know, some people joined with their personal name, so I'm not sure where they were from, but I think the directors from Emmett were there, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, I do remember visiting uh, a library in Driggs, um, which is far eastern Idaho and um and the, getting back to the idea of like tech those technological differences and um with with the splat group from ICFL and you know we rolled in with Sphero robots and VR goggles and 3D printers and all this stuff and we also had some tablets and Kit readers and stuff that um, that we didn't actually take out at any other stop that we went to, but at that stop, that was actually the stuff that was most meaningful for them because that was the sort of thing that they were getting the most questions about. Um, so I think sometimes I, one of the things that I've learned most with that group traveling across the state um, is that you got to be flexible and you got to listen to the people that you're there to help. Um, Just because we're excited about 3D printers and robots doesn't mean that the people that we're going and visiting, that that is going to be what's most meaningful to them. Certainly we can expose them to those things, but um, you know, if part of our job there is to also help them kind of skill up uh, to better serve their community, then it might be that they aren't ready for robots. Um, it might be that they're, they've got folks that have tablets and readers that are a number of years old and they're still trying to figure out how to use them. Um, and so helping them 
kind of beef up their toolbox in that area is what is going to be the best use of our time. Because usually we're only at those libraries for maybe an hour or two, because when we go on those trips, uh, we're hitting maybe three or four libraries in one day. So we're really just kind of cycling through them really quick. It's pretty exhausting. You know, and just to go off road from our little script that we say we never have, um, when you're going to these rural communities, are you seeing, you know, are you seeing more interest with the kids or there are a lot of kids that are there versus, you know, older, maybe seniors or people who are middle-aged, you know, when you walk in, can you kind of size up the library to see, well, okay, there's only like three kids in the building or, you know, you know what I, you know what I'm trying to say? Like part of making is knowing not only the community, but the age makeup of the community. Um, I think the biggest takeaway I've gotten from those visits is actually to completely do away with any assumption I have about any person that I'm talking to. Because there are, um, there's, you know, Idaho National Laboratory that's out in far eastern Idaho um, that has... Hey, be careful, that's right near us. Sorry, that has a number... <laughs> no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk about it. It's far, far out there. Far, <laughs> far way, away. It's like in the middle of nowhere. I don't know why anyone would go there. <laughs> but you know there's a bunch of really crazy smart people that work there and live in that community and so uh and some of those people are folks that are have been working there for years and so they're older and uh if i walked in with the assumption that anyone that uh you know looked like they were my parents or older wouldn't have any idea what to do with a 3d printer then um i would have been doing a complete disservice to a lot of people in those areas because um, I've seen people who I would have thought, oh, they probably don't even know how to use their phone, come over and like geek out with me on the 3D printer. (laughs) I I second all of that, by the way. Yeah. 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 And I've had little kids who are super excited about the Kiva planks, which is just like wood blocks and a ping pong ball, because that's something that they have never gotten to experience before and being able to build and create in that way. So, um, yeah, or like an adolescent struggling with a trackpad to use his finger on or a mouse. But again, I have a 80-year-old senior coming in asking me about, do you have a 3D scanner? Can I scan this in to 3D print it? And I'm like, what's going on? So, yeah. yeah. And that's where I think having a conversation with those people, that's part of what I love about getting to go and do those site visits is learning about uh, the people in those communities and what they're excited about. Um, And uh, it really kind of helps me broaden my understanding of who the people are in Idaho. So I was really excited to get to do all that traveling. And I've only been here for three years and I've probably seen more of the state than a lot of people that have lived here their entire lives. That really is cool. I have a a quick follow-up. I know we're getting off track a bit, but I'm just curious because we've talked about I've talked about this in personal life outside of here. Um, now, when you're going to these communities and you're seeing people on and you say, oh, well, their community needs are being on Kindles or um, tablets and learning how to answer those questions. Um, you know, where does that balance come in as far as being exposed to certain things? Because I feel like there's certain communities that just don't know that maybe a 3D printer or what other technologies are out there. And should they have been exposed to that? They might have a need or desire or a question, but what is active in their community is a neighbor going, hey, you got, do you have one of those tablets? Have you been listening to, you know, ebooks? But there's just no talk about the others, so it's just lack of exposure. 
For sure. And we, and it is a fine, uh, a fine balance between the two. So usually the way we'd approach those events is we would kind of just set everything out and see what people were interested in and let the people that were coming to the event kind of guide, um, guide the discussion. So, uh, we would make sure that things were out so people could at least see what was available. Um, and uh, if there, if we were talking about one thing that was next to something else, then we would also try to kind of guide them along to the different things that were available for them to interact with. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so question about the building a better world theme for, for the, the book club for summer reading, because believe it or not, I don't know if it's an, an ALA thing, but we have the same uh, topic here, or the same the same theme this this year, and we're doing uh, we're doing actually a maker fair, even though we're not supposed to call it a maker fair, uh, based around it. So we're going to have all kinds of fun stuff. The local police department's bringing their bomb robots, and we're having yarn bombing, and we're having some of the local high schools bring their robotics teams robots with us. It's a whole big thing. It's really kind of a cool thing, and we kind of base it on building a better world by taking the concept of steam and integrating it into that just to to get interest up tell me what you're doing in idaho for that so i am not doing a ton for that because i work at an academic institution and we don't have summer reading because it is dead here over the summer (laughs) nice that's when i get everything done academic Um, academics you gotta love them right right (laughs) They don't know what it's like down in the trenches. Way to take a day off. <laughs> you know me. Um, no, but I mean, you can speak on though. You know what we're trying to do as a ILA maker committee, and how we're trying to get the word out for build a better world. For sure. So, uh, so it is. So the it is. It's usually a national theme. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of the group that organizes it, but from back at my children's librarian days, I remember that everyone was waiting with bated breath to find out what the theme was for the next year for summer reading. Um, and then frantically trying to make things that related to it. Um, so we were really excited that the theme did have a uh, direct connection to making, although I can make a connection to making from pretty much any theme that you give me. Um, and so the idea of the um, chat that we had the other day was to get people across the state thinking about summer reading because uh, rather than it being a last minute crunch, um, we wanted to do it early before hopefully pl- plans were really solidified and have a discussion about different ways that they could interpret the idea of building a better world and um, how they could uh, relate um, making to that. So like some of some of the things that we talked about were very obvious. They were um Uh, doing a cardboard city where you are literally building a city or a world um, that can be an opportunity for students to kind of start thinking about um, how they would design spaces, how buildings interact with one another, um, and then also getting some of that uh, experience of using recycled materials a lot of times. Um, And all the way up to more kind of abstract ideas of building a better world as far as using making as a way to to kind of put some social change out there into the world. So like crafting or making for a cause or a lot of different um, groups out there that need donations of items that uh, they're happy to accept. So like... um, 
animal shelters are always needing blankets or toys for the animals that are there. And sometimes you can make those from recycled materials. That makes sense. And again, going off road for just a moment, what do you say to people? Because we hear this a lot, um, especially from people who don't necessarily come to the library. What do you say to someone who says, why are libraries even doing this? What's, what's the point? Aren't they about books? Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people are kind of stuck in that idea of libraries being about books. And certainly that is still our bread and butter. Um, But really, if you take a broader view of it, libraries have democratized access to knowledge and information and things. So um, I used to work at a library that had a typewriter in it. And that thing got used all the time because... um, there were people that preferred typing on a typewriter, but they couldn't afford to buy one and they certainly couldn't afford to like buy ribbons for it and stuff. So they would come and sit and use the typewriter, which is a tool and it's a way that they were able to share their story and their knowledge with the world is how they were using it. So as libraries have evolved and certainly as technology has evolved, there are more and more ways that we can share our story and knowledge with the world. So now you can create a short video that tells some sort of story that you want to put out there for other people to experience. Um, You can do a podcast and share your ideas with the world. Uh, Jeff did that cool program with poetry and makey makeys where poetry is a way of expressing yourself and sharing your story and adding some kind of technological components to it. So I think this is just where libraries are going and certainly academic libraries are certainly on board with that. And there's a lot of libraries that are doing making. Yes, actually Stony Brook University here, uh, here on Long Island in, in, uh, in Stony Brook. They have um, an innovation lab that they actually got funding to finally expand. They were in three separate uh, buildings that uh, weren't connected, and it was just unused space. And and, um, they actually made it into a space where students can come in and do stuff. And they've done some pretty innovative things, and now they're finally getting great recognition and um, getting more funding, which is kind of a nice thing. But the colleges are doing that whether it's something that's really sponsored or something that's on the side, I think colleges, at least here in New York, are doing that now too. Mm-hmm. And it just makes some sense. I mean, especially if you have an engineering program or even if it's a, you know, a, a medical school um, program, there's, there's components to all of that that can be integrated. Uh, so it does make sense on an academic level to have something like that. Um, switching gears for a second, you talked before, Jeff, you had mentioned something about the Twitter chats. Tell us how you guys use Twitter to communicate as well, because I found that kind of fascinating. Well, I think that was that was also born out of the ILA committee in one of our webinars or, or one of our short talks or demos. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, but when we talked when Dina talked earlier about the good and evil of like technology and being on the right side of things of how to use them. I feel that way about social media. Um, I use social media very little in my private life, but in my public life, I use it all the time. Um, I don't, I think libraries are, are missing the boat on social media. I don't know how many use it. When I search across the state, I find very few um, uh, on there. And if they are not really using it effectively. Um, but I think there is a community that is out there and i've i've seen it um again in the short times that i've been on in my private life through twitter 
that you can make these connections um, that you would normally never have. I mean, Absolutely. Chris, you reached out to me um, via Twitter by putting putting some information out there. And I think that Twitter chats are a quick, easy way for people not to dedicate a lot of time, but uh, can develop a lot of uh, interesting networking opportunities and uh, philosophizing about certain things that libraries might do and might spawn a new idea for you to kind of bring to your library. So it's just, again, essentially, if no one's ever heard of a Twitter chat, it's just using a similar hashtag at a particular time and somebody moderates some questions while you answer them. And, you know, Twitter is often maligned as being a very negative, evil, dark place. And what's nice about collaborating and doing these kinds of things, it's actually using Twitter for what it was really meant to be and not being, you know, a place where people get trolled and and get shamed and, and bullied and all that other stuff. So I think, at least in the library world, it's really interesting how it's a place where true collaboration can occur. I, I believe that without a doubt. I think that there is um, also a strong connection between making and social media and how that might affect making. Um, we were talking earlier about technology and breaking down the boundaries. Um, I think I brought up this idea again, in one of our ILA talks, I mean, I don't, I could totally foresee a position where you're in a maker lab or space and you're now using technology to communicate with uh, people in New York or people somewhere else that are helping improve your design or critique your design so that you can make more improvements and moving forward, uh, just not nationally, but globally, uh, working with specialized people all over the world and truly getting the best product out of it other than the people that just live in your community? For sure. I just attended um, Hackfort, which was a conference here in Boise. And one of the keynote speakers, she was, her name's escaping me, but she was an experienced designer, which sounds like the raddest job ever in a lot of ways. And one of the things she showed a couple of quick videos as far as ways to kind of demonstrate what an experienced designer would do. And uh, one of the videos that she showed was uh, this new way that learning would happen. And there was a guy standing in the middle of a virtual room and he was the instructor and there were all these screens floating in space around him and they were all people from different countries and they all spoke different languages and what she was demonstrating was that the professor um, was speaking different language than everybody else but there was like this instantaneous translation that was happening so all of these people were able to communicate at the same time about whatever the class content was um, at different points across the globe which was pretty awesome. I was like, that sounds way better than like, you know, a lot of MOOCs that I've been in. <laughs> what was the software again for that, that they were using? Do you know? <laughs> um, I believe it was all just theoretical at this point. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I know that at some point, um, I guess it was Snapchat or, or, or WhatsApp or something had a component that was like that, but it never really worked very well. Oh. Yeah. So just throw it out All there. Right. Jeff you looks know. like he's trying to get us back on track. Yeah, I I know. I'm just looking at the next questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're up to number nine, Jeff. Now we're throwing down the third wall, right? Yeah. Number nine. That's exactly. Oh, yeah. So we, you've, you've alluded to it in, this, in various parts of the earlier conversation. But, Dina, do you want to tell us about your Maker Lab there and how it came to be? Oh, yeah. Um, so 
uh, our Maker Lab actually started kind of in this space where my office is right now, which was just a, it was called the Collaboration Lab or the CoLab when I started. And um, there were a couple of large desks in here with dual monitors and um, uh, I think some more sophisticated software for like video and audio editing. And my office is kind of tucked back in a corner of the first floor of the library. And it was the sort of thing where if you didn't know that it was here, there was no way you were gonna find it. Um, I'm, I'm right outside the map collection. So also people that would come and look at maps would kind of know that it was here, but not really anyone else. And um, my colleague, Amy Vecchione and I uh, kind of had a mind meld about uh, trying to have the space get used more. Um, and we hosted something in it that we called a maker mixer. And uh, it was right around the time that some end of year funding had been used to purchase the first uh, 3D printer that we had here in the building. And so we set up the 3D printer. We had, I think, a leap motion that was out. Someone had a Raspberry Pi that was running a game on it. And I think we may have had a green screen up that people could take pictures in front of. And, um, and what we did is we invited people from across campus that either we knew would be interested in this sort of environment or um, that we strategically wanted to invite so that they knew that it was going on. And we used it as a way to kind of gauge interest moving forward and see who the people were that came to that event that were really excited about it and, um, and basically be like, aha, all right, we're going to follow up with you in a very intentional fashion. <laughs> um, so, it was in this space and then uh, things just kind of grew and uh, there wasn't enough room in this space anymore. And we also started to realize that we could probably make better use of some of the other space on the first floor, like where the microfilm room was, or as I like to call it, the obsolete technology room. <laughs> I love it. Which, which was just this, uh, you know, it had, small windows because it was originally designed to have the microfilm in it so that way it didn't have as much light damage and heat in there um, so it was just this cavern of all of these metal cases and there were some study carols kind of dispersed throughout here and there but basically you'd walk into that room and you'd just kind of every once in a while see like you know the prairie dog person like sticking their head up as you walked <laughs> in and were talking um and there, there was never more than like a couple of people in there so it was just really underutilized space and um through a culmination of a lot of events that I'm not going to go into, um, we ended up taking over that space. And so that is where our maker lab is what it's called now. It resides. And so the furniture that was previously here in our offices got moved into that space. And um, a couple of the computers got moved over there as well. Some of the others got moved out into other spots of the computer labs. And um, we got an official green screen painted wall. So it wasn't just a piece of fabric anymore. And um, our fleet of 3D printers has grown from the one that we started with to, I think we have nine now. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, and we're actually... Yeah, and we're actually in the process of um, another makerspace kind of spawned on the second floor that has slightly different equipment, and we're in the process of smushing those two together into one spot. 
Wow. And, and I think part of the, the trick with making makerspaces is that repurposing. I mean, their reference collections are going away. I can't speak so much about academia, but in, in the public sector, I think we have a couple of sets of encyclopedias, and that's all we have left. Everything else has been either discarded or put in the general collection. And in fact, the, the area that we have, because we have three spaces in our building, uh, one for each department, and uh, what we actually took over the genealogy section, the genealogy area. Because, you know, the ancestry. So I feel bad for all the genealogy people, the map nerds, the microfiche nerds. Who else are, who else are we excluding? Oh, no, the maps are still here. Oh, okay. <laughs> they actually can't go anywhere else because they're so heavy. This is the only floor that's load-bearing enough for them to live on. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, we yeah, researched no, it. Chris, you're right, though. It's all about repurposing space and figuring that out. It sounds like that's a similar story to... You know, in their Maker Lab, it was the same story for this kind of sound podcast studio. It was just a test proctoring room that was only getting used, you know, three times a, every few months. So it just makes sense because, mm-hmm. yeah, know, we don't have budgets to, to build onto our buildings. I mean, and our building here at Sachem is as pretty big as it is. It's just a matter of finding the nooks and crannies and repurposing them. Exactly. That, that's the whole trick. Um so is your Maker Lab open to the public, or is it limited just to students? Yes and no. Um, there's no door on it, so anyone can walk in, and uh, the green screen is painted on the wall, so it's not like we can stop you from using it. And there's always lighting that's sitting there around the green screen area. But um, but 3D printing is limited to only people affiliated with university, uh, as is any equipment that you check out it's like all of the audio video equipment um or the we do have a sound booth also up on the fourth floor it's not nearly as nice as jeff's but uh we'll get there someday um so any of that sort of technology the makey makeys raspberry pies your arduinos all of that stuff is only available for people that are able to actually check stuff out um and that is mostly because uh the way that funding works with a university, a lot of our funding comes from the students that are um, going to school here. People can get a, a community borrower card, and that certainly will allow them to access that. But I think there's a small fee with doing that. That was actually, you, you took my next question away, because I know that at Stony Brook University, they used to have a reciprocity, um, like a, a, a privilege card if you were in the Suffolk County uh, system. Um, I don't know if that still exists, but it, it did happen at one time, yeah. We do fortunately have a really good reputation with Boise Public Library, who I'm going to give a shout out to, who's just on the other side of the river from campus. And um, our, our students are able to go get a library card there, which gives them access to a whole bunch of other cool stuff that they're doing over there. Very cool. Do they have a makerspace over there too? They actually just recently, I think every public library in the valley or in idaho it must be the valley uh just got a vr room nice yeah and they've got robots and all sorts of fun stuff you can borrow from them that's really neat mm-hmm. um so tell me more about um the other lines of communication you know i mean because we talked about it before with idaho being so far flung you know it, other, i mean are they using facetime and skype and, and some of those other things too what have you guys experienced with regard to that because the distances are so vast and, you know, it's so rural. 
Yeah. So I think we're probably using similar tools um, within our building as we are within the state. Um, so, I mean, pretty much the same stuff that's just freely available mm-hmm. uh, or things that I have access to because I work here at the university. And so like when we hosted the online chat the other day, we used Zoom, which is something that the university has a license with. So I was able to provide access through that, um, which is a super, super easy tool to use. That's pretty cool. What about you, Jeff? What, do you, what have you, what other forms of chatting or communication have you used that, you know, have kind of worked for you? I guess as far as work purposes go, it would only be um, the only work colleague I have outside of here is we're talking to her. Um, <laughs> So it would be uh, probably, yeah, through Google Hangouts and things like that. I I haven't found a need yet to communicate with uh, people from around the state other than, I guess, through our just old-fashioned emails and listservs and communication like that. Um, I don't have enough direct connection with other people, let's say, um, through social media or Skype contacts or anything like that. I'm sure they would be up for it. There just hasn't come a time to utilize it. What sort of tools do you use there within your library to interact with your patrons? Well, here, um, mostly it's face-to-face. We will do, you know, email conversations. Uh, I know some libraries use an online chat function. Uh, We haven't done that here. And at one time, uh, the system had something that was kind of like we all shared it and we all had a certain amount of time to use it. Uh, that kind of didn't work out so well because we were getting people from outside of the county that were, you know, either trolling or trying to get information or, and sometimes a little creepy. Uh, so I don't know if that really has survived on any, on any real level. We don't use it here. Um, mo- there's so much that's face-to-face and the rest would be email. Uh, we don't really use video chat that often. I mean... Just to compare, I mean, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the way it is here. I know Jeff's a little familiar with it. Uh, the libraries are pretty densely packed here. So I can drive from, from us here at Sachem, and I can drive to the Middle Country Public Library and probably get there in about five minutes. Um, I can get to the, the Konequat Library, which is my actually my home library, in about ten minutes. And then from Konequat, I can get to East Islip in probably five or six minutes. So the libraries are kind of on top of each other. So we don't really have that distance thing that we have to really worry about for video chat and, and stuff like that. The, mo- the only real time we really use video chat is every once in a while we'll, it, it, and it's usually with a teen or, you know, somebody who's in their 20s, you know, we'll do a FaceTime session or a Google Hangout just because they wanted to see something or, you know, something along those lines. But we don't use it as extensively as, uh, as you guys seem to do. And yeah. when communicating with upstate New York, um, I'd like to open those communication lines, uh, but it hasn't really come up. Yeah, I don't think that we necessarily um, use those functions for a direct communication, but they definitely pop up as far as webinars, seminars, um, joining a, a an overall conference call where you might just be a fly on the wall. Um, that certainly saves time for people in this rural community to go down and, and visit that where, again, if you're five, six minutes away, you can just drive down and attend that board meeting. But right. here we would just log on and at least hear what they're saying. And people that have the ability that have video and audio could participate, but at least you could log on and be a part of that conversation by hearing it. 
Well, you know, there is another thing that we are using now when it comes to um, the technology meetings that that I help moderate. Uh, Because we get on average between 20 and 30, maybe 40 people who come to the meeting. And then when the meeting's over, the meeting's over. Uh, With the last few meetings, we've been streaming it on Facebook. And it was funny because the first time we actually streamed it, it was about streaming uh, meetings. And one of the people had said, well, you know, we really don't have a lot of success with it because we only get three or four people who are watching. But another colleague had chimed up and said, well, it's not really about the live broadcast. It's about the legacy. So with the last meeting that we had, uh, it was actually a pretty engaging meeting with a, a librarian in another county who came in to talk about her book discussions and how she gets between 50 and 60 people for a book discussion. She integrates all this technology and she uh, has the authors either Skype in or FaceTime in or Google, you know, Google Hangout in. Or she'll have, if it's a, they were just did a book about the sinking of the Lusitania, and she brought all this material out in videos and, and video clips from YouTube, and, you know, she really integrates it with the media. And she's going to be the first person to say that she really stinks at technology, but she was able to take the little bit that she knew and integrate it, and she got a real following, and now... You know, she has these huge book discussions, and it, you know, it really does work that way. So we, we had her come in to talk about it, and we streamed it. And because she was from Nassau County, the adjoining county, we had not so many people actually follow it live. But the last time I checked it, we had over 220 views of that meeting, which was about 30 people in a room. So we went from having a meeting where 30 people were there to now having a legacy where people can watch that meeting anytime they want. I think that's what we're doing currently here, aside from our one viewer. Thanks, Marie. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, who told me via text while we were on the phone, like, I'm joining in. So, thanks to her. But thanks yes. to everybody in Suffolk County. Thanks for uh, supporting the podcast. I love it. Yeah. But no, but I, I understand. I mean, having that, that legacy um, to be able to share on other platforms, not even just Facebook after it's done, but you can continue to promote it in different ways. Sure. Um, like we did our video chat that we did yesterday um, for Building a Better World, and it was great to have an online panel discussion, but you know, not everyone can attend at that particular time. So now we recorded that, and we're able to share that out to the greater Idaho libraries today that they can go back and rewatch it. And like you said, they might garner something from that that uh, they weren't able to tune in live. Sure, and it's nice to read the comments, too, because people will say, other than, oh, you look great, or this is great, and they'll say, well, what do you mean you use this? Why won't you use that? Or she didn't address this, or they didn't talk about that. And um, So, you know, the comments actually open the dialogue even further. Do you think we'll get a comment on this uh, from Bob saying, I want my job back? (laughs) You're fired! Sorry. (laughs) Or he'll say something like, uh, uh, yeah, we're never doing anything with Idaho again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or he'll say that I'm fired and he's going to come and steal my board in the middle of the night and, and try to take over <laughs> from me <laughs> poor Bob he's so afraid of Idaho why is he so afraid of Idaho <laughs> poor Bob what are we going to do with Bob we are frightening yeah, it's the beard <laughs> yeah the beard and the flannel it's mandatory I told you that last time it's I mandatory. know and, and I don't know if I can come because I can't grow a beard Oh, yeah, that's that's really bad. I'm going to look like one of those, you know, East Coast people. Right. Because 
You certainly can't open your mouth because you got the New York accent. I, I'm going to have to listen to tapes of people from Idaho and just try to mimic the accent. The second I open my <laughs> mouth, it's, it's over. It's completely over. It's just a West Coast accent. Yeah. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> I've only been to Seattle once. Oh. That's the only time I've been west of the Mississippi River. Pretty wow. pathetic, right? Did it rain? The whole time. Okay. See, Willamette Valley can't do it anymore. Well, the, the joke was, I said, because I visited my uncle, I said, you realize this whole Mount Rainier thing is a joke? You just do it to get people to come here. And then the clouds parted for like three minutes, and I saw it. And I was completely stunned. And everybody who was from there was like, what are you staring at? I'm like, well, <laughs> you should be staring at the sun because you never see that. Right. But I'm staring at that big monster thing over there with the snow on top, and it's, you know, it was April. Snow in April? Are you kidding me? Yeah. So, it, but it, it lasted for like 30 seconds, and then it went back to raining again. Mm. So, yeah, that's my experience west, you know, on the West Coast. Sounds like you need to visit the high desert. Yep. Sounds that way. Sounds <laughs> that way indeed. So, have you guys ever made it? Well, I know, Jeff, you from, you know, I'm not going to say where you're from in case people in Idaho want to now, you know, flog you for being somewhere else, from somewhere else, but... uh you could say Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is certainly fine. Okay. So, so uh, Dina, have you ever been east of the Mississippi? I have. I've been to New York once. <laughs> and notice he said once. <laughs> it, was, it was about 10 years ago. It was actually a lot of fun. I went with a bunch of girlfriends for um, a birthday of mine. And, uh, and... Growing up on the West Coast, you hear a lot about how East Coasters are mean. <laughs> I love it. And and what I realized is not that people on the East Coast, or at least in New York, they're not mean. They're very efficient. Efficient? You could say and that so we're like... I appreciated under, having an understanding of that difference. You can say that they're rude or terse or something like that. No, they I agree be. with Dina. I think they just have a... They're really strong with their time management. Well, you kind of have to be, I guess, because we have to yeah, commute for such not, a long time. If you're not with it, then, you know, you get left behind. Whereas, like, out here, it's just, like, you got plenty of time. What's that like? It's glorious. <laughs> it is glorious. Like, I, when I, I don't know if I told you, when I got back from um, Christmas, which I was visiting the East Coast, and, you know, all these houses are on top of each other, and neighbors are in your business yes. and driving out from Idaho fall, Idaho falls uh, airport. You just like, I don't know. You just get this both physical reaction and uh, mental. Like we just like, ah, I can stretch out. Like I can just <laughs> feel like there's not yeah. people around me. All I the know time. that feeling very I well. Felt that way when we... <laughs> I felt that way when we moved from Portland to Santa Fe, um, which a good chunk of New Mexico, I think is still considered like, frontier or something it's so i think it might be more sparsely populated than idaho um but definitely had that like oh i felt like i could breathe all of a sudden and i definitely loved their unofficial state mono which was uh carpe manana carpe manana as opposed to new york's get out of the way (laughs) or san francisco's you're doing it wrong yeah (laughs) Wow, we should start a list. We should. Oh, there's there's a lot of other things that we can't say about you know I we got, can't say on this podcast because we don't have the explicit uh, rating on iTunes for what New Yorkers would say. 
<laughs> I would. I'm going to say Idaho's anyway. Is you can't make me. <laughs> Nor would I try. Because I'm sure there's a shotgun involved. That's what the feeling is. Can't make me. (laughs) Gotta love it. Well, (laughs) I have to thank you both for being on the podcast um, because Jeff was crazy enough to actually come back and and do it again. Um, But really, seriously, thanks for coming on and and thanks for dragging Dina in on this craziness that we we do here on the podcast. Um, Because it's great. Like I said before, it's, you know, we talk to people from New York all the time, and you know it's great to to get that that flavor from someplace else. And Idaho is certainly someplace else. So it is. It certainly is. Um, so we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to ask Dina because Jeff, we've asked you these questions already. You could actually team up with me on this. You could be you could be great. my Bob. <laughs> no one can be your Bob, but Bob. I was going to say there's no replacing Bob, guys. There's no replacing. There's no Bob. replacing Bob. So we're going to ask you our top ten. Uh, library questions or the 032 list which is a Dewey number for top 10 lists and we have to thank Melanie Cardone I do it every single time for the idea so if you're a frequent listener of the podcast then you know that we ask these questions from all our guests so we will be back in just a moment and now Okay, we're back talking with Dina and Jeff, co-chairs of the Idaho Library Association Maker Committee, who are, well, Jeff's not, but uh, Dina's going to be our next participant in the 032 list, which corresponds to the Dewey number for top 10 lists. I love you guys are laughing at me. It's my turn, Jeff. Yeah. It's your turn. Well, Jeff's not. He's not important. No, no, he's very important. You're going to be helping me with this list. Uh, the top 10 list, uh, it's the top 10 list librarian questions we ask everybody. So the questions are inspired by the website Literary Hub. Uh, which is a website with very interesting library-related stories and interviews. You can see their work by visiting www.lithub.com. You can check them out uh, because they do a great job educating and informing the library world on uh, great topics from all over the world. They also have a Twitter, which I've, apparently I've deleted from the script. But they, I think they're at LitHub on Twitter. I, I've read this enough times I think I can remember it. So we want to say they thank you, Literary Hub. Hub. Yep. Okay. Oh, so, on Twitter. Oh, yeah. You can start, Jeff. You want to start? Sure. So this is like I, you guys are. It's kind of lightning round ish, right, Chris? Yes. Okay. So it's. Uh, yeah. I have a drum roll if you want me to play that. You, I can play the what, drum. Yeah. Roll. What did you okay. want to be when you were a child? Oh, um, the first thing I remember wanting to be was like a fashion designer. I had fashion plates. Was a. It wasn't really a game. I don't know what you would call it, but I had this thing called fashion plates when I was little that I loved playing with. And yep, fashion designer. Excellent. So what was your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? Ooh, I'm pretty sure it was my mom. And I remember going to the Beaverton Public Library downtown branch where it used to be, not in the crazy awesome new building that they're in. And I remember the atrium had like this really cool um, 
open glass area. My first first ever library memory, though, was uh, the library in my grade school, which was super cool. Lots of stuffed animals and fun posters everywhere. Very cool. Very cool. When did you decide to work in a library? And if not, was it your first career path? As many librarians, it's their second. I wouldn't call what I was doing before necessarily a career path, but um, but basically, <laughs> basically I, I realized, huh, so my art degree means that I'm going to work in art retail the rest of my life, and I wasn't really okay with that. Um, so I kind of took a look back at all of the jobs that I had had and things that I liked about them and didn't like, and I a friend of the family was a grade school librarian. And so I went and talked to her about being a librarian. And uh, I think I narrowed it down to being a librarian, being an art teacher, or going and teaching ESL overseas. And uh, my grammar sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, art departments were starting to get cut at that time. So that didn't really seem like a good way to go. And um and if I was a librarian, I would still get to teach, but I didn't necessarily have to give people grades. Okay. So this is a favorite question that we like to ask. Who's your favorite fictional librarian? Oh, that's an easy one. So uh, when I was in this phase of, of trying to pick between these three different jobs, um, I went and saw Party Girl with a bunch of friends and I took that as a sign that clearly I was supposed to become a librarian because I loved Parker Posey in that movie. <laughs> that's, a, that's one I don't think we've had before. That's a good one. No. <laughs> you didn't have mine either, by the way. Um, so, Dina, what would you be doing if you weren't working in a library? Oh, like if I had like all the sure. money in the sure, world? whatever you want to do. Okay. Um, I would probably just be making art. Okay, what's your favorite section of the library? And that could be that could mean like nonfiction, fiction. It could mean the makerspace, the study rooms, the cafeteria. Gotcha. The bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Staff bathroom. Uh, of course, you don't want to go in public bathrooms. No, no dear God. Uh, I would say um, one of my favorite spots in this particular library is on the third or the fourth floor because one whole end of the building is windows that look out over the Boise river and the zoo is just on the other side and there are giraffes at the zoo. So every once in a while, if you're hanging out working on something, you'll kind of, you know, daydream out the window and there'll be a giraffe head that's kind of floating on the other side of the river. <laughs> Come on, Dean. You didn't make. You didn't need to make Idaho seem any more <laughs> remote than giraffe heads floating outside your library. It's magical. Apparently, um, I guess we'll <laughs> move on. If you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library? Uh, well, you know, selfishly, I would obviously like make the Maker Lab bigger. Um, one of the things we have actually as a building talked about before though is putting a patio off of the back of the building that is right along the green belt um i think would be a fabulous addition um for you know for our community not just for us right nice so what do you love about your library 
I love the energy of the students coming in here. Uh, over the summer, it actually gets, I will admit that right after graduation, it's kind of <sighs> a relief to kind of be able to like catch your breath. But by the end of the summer, it's really creepy. And there's that energy and constant reminder of purpose that's kind of lacking. So I really like having the building be used in full. Great. What is the weirdest thing that's happened at your library? Um, probably something I can't share. So I'll talk about another library. Um, <laughs> I used to work at a small um, for-profit college library, and it was a one-room library. And one day, I was the only person in there, and like my desk was basically in the middle of the library. So there was no privacy. And there was a table that was kind of next to my desk, a communal table. And someone came in, sat down, proceeded to take their shoes and socks off and clip their toenails while sitting there in the middle gross. of the library. That's gross. Guess what? It was disgusting. I've had that happen too. Oh, no. What is it? Yeah. And he did that, that one particular person who I won't call a patron, he's did some, he did some other really nasty stuff too. He ended up in jail one. He's I think he's still in jail, but story for another time. <laughs> so who is your favorite regular patron? I guess in your circumstance would be a student. Uh-huh. Um, there's one student who is a computer science major who um, I always have great conversations with. And he's very uh, he's very down to earth tells it like it is he's um he's into the security aspect of computer science so i also like uh enjoy talking to him about like lock picking and uh getting at some of that good and evil using your power for one or the other i love it that's great um what are people with live without library cards missing out on oh uh, I think that gets back to a conversation we were having earlier as far as there's so much stuff that you can I, – I like to think that we're slowly growing as a library of things rather than just a library of books. So um, not only is there all of the stuff that's related to the makerspace that you can borrow, but uh, we also, for the 50th anniversary of the building, we got a budget to buy a whole bunch of lawn games as a gift to the student body. So you can – borrow a set of bocce balls or cornhole or badminton set. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That is cool. That is neat. Well, those are our questions. And um, I just wanted to give you an update. I took a picture of our screen and sent it to Bob and said, Jeff took your job. <laughs> and his response is cool. Will he be on all of them? Meaning all of the episodes. <laughs> That's funny. That's pretty Bob. funny. So what should we write back to Bob? What do you think we should say? Because it's got to be poignant. Um, That's a lot of pressure. That That's is. a lot of pressure, yeah. Um, don't call us. We'll call you. Um, <laughs> Idaho's waiting? I don't know. Are you afraid of Idaho? Right. And then send a picture of a cow. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I have to thank you for participating in our, our list and being such a good sport because... We haven't had anybody balk on any of the questions yet, but some of them can be a little goofy. So we just want to say thank you for doing that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This has been great. And Jeff, as always, 
great co-host. Thank you for inviting me back, and I'm glad that I could bring Dina into the evil fold that is the Library Bros podcast. <laughs> nice. I love it. So if uh, if Bob can't appear again, I may actually hit you up to get another uh, co-host. We'll see, yeah. <laughs> that could be fun, right? Could be, yeah. Excellent. We might visit Kansas next time. Kansas, nice. As long as there's no tornadoes, right? Right. <laughs> okay. So that's all the time we have for this edition. Uh, let's see. If you have any questions or comments on the show, please go to our contact us section on our website, thelibrarypros.com, where we'll also have notes and links from all of our episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at, at, at facebook.com slash librarypros. And so you don't miss a thing... Don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, Android, email, and Google Play. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Jeff uh, and are not those of the Sage Public Library. We're crossing out the MS Clark Library and saying, or the Salmon Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the library pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Paul Wedge.